Hey, this is Kelly Whiffen. Thanks for joining us today for the Encounter Church podcast. We all want to live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, we believe the next 30 minutes can be one of the most helpful and hopeful parts of your week. At the end of the podcast, stay tuned for a couple messages. Thanks again for joining us today. Welcome to Encounter Church. I'm glad you're here today as we kick off this new series called Mastermind. And uh, I tend to spend a few weeks ahead in messages, and so I have to, like, contain my excitement. This is just just kind of give you an overview. So this is, like, for a month I've been working on this series, and I've been so looking forward to it. So I'm like, it's finally here. So it may not feel like Christmas to you yet, okay? But this series is going to be like Christmas to you. Um, because throughout the course of this month, we want to engage and, and really dive into those different minefields that we can walk through in life that end up blowing up. And everyday life often gets derailed by those everyday thoughts that we've never thought about before. And um, it's, it's incredible how something that um, underneath the surface that we don't even see can be the, th- be the very thing shaping how our lives are impacted. In fact, I came across uh, this really kind of famous medical kind of moment in modern medicine history that reminded me of the power of our thought life. Um, in the period of 1831 to around 1854, tens of thousands of people were dying in London. Uh, it was a mysterious disease. They, they weren't exactly sure what it was. It was something clearly intestinal. It was um, diarrhea, vomiting, and it had this really tragic track record. It would kill you within hours, not days. And the city was kind of gripped because here's this invisible force that out of nowhere strikes. And it was during 1854 at the intersection of Broad Street and Cambridge and what's now known as the Soho District of London that a specific um, kind of one of the largest of these outbreaks broke out. About 616 people died in a very short time frame. And the common medical theory of the day was that it was something called miasma. It was bad air or bad atmosphere. That, that, that's what did it. And um, there was a doctor who lived close by to the Soho district, a doctor named John Snow, who had a theory that maybe it wasn't bad air, that there was something else going on. People treated him like he was crazy. They were like, no, it's clearly, it's just bad air. That's what kills all of these people. And he said, no, I think there's something more. And so he set out to prove it. He would created this grid chart, and he would document where all the different sicknesses were playing out. And what he eventually did was able to take it and pinpoint to this little tiny pump on Broad Street, a pump that's memorialized today in London, if you ever happen to be there, this little black kind of tall cylinder. And, and he traces the kind of cause of the sickness back to this one central pump on Broad Street. And people are still skeptical, but what he does is he so thoroughly documents both the ones who got sick and the ones who don't get sick in that area, that eventually what he does is he turns the whole tide of public thought around sickness. He helps to actually usher in what we now call the modern um, medical field of epidemiology. He introduces what we now call blind study example, uh, like blind studies in um, 
and research. I mean, John Snow, in a lot of ways, is the father of modern medicine and modern medical approaches because John Snow understood something that I think that very much overlaps and intersects with the power of thought life is that the visible can be powerfully shapen by the invisible. And that if you're not careful, the visible can be over, completely overtaken by this invisible force. And I think that thought, our thought life is even more powerful than ultimately what he helped to determine around that Broad Street pump. That our thought life is, is just as a destructive well in our lives today as it is to their life back then. That if you think what, if you really dig into what is it that often derails you, what is it that, that destroys your relationships, that hinders you in your personal or professional life, that when you start to do a documented study the way Jon Snow approached this thing and start to really objectively look at it, what you'll find is it's your thought life. And my thought life are often the invisible force in our lives that are shaping the visible force of our life. I think it's not an overstatement to say that your life moves in the direction of your thoughts and that ultimately the seeds planted up here become the fruit that surrounds you out there. And that's why I think when I kind of got up here and I was just excited, is for a month I've been processing and working through what I believe could be a powerful transformative series for you. I'm so excited about next, next week I have to like refrain myself because I think next week will change some of your lives. And the week after that and the week after that because it's just that revolutionary. It's the thought life is so powerful. Which is why it's not surprising that Paul, who's one of the most famous prolific Christian writers of all time, who writes a bulk of the New Testament, um, it's no wonder that Paul spends his time teaching the people that he's writing to how to think. He writes this incredible letter that today we call the letter to the Philippi or Philippians or the Philippi church, um, but we call it the letter to the Philippians or no, Philippians, sorry, it's like bouncing around my head. Um, I told you I was excited. So the Philippian letter, he, he spends this amazing chapter after chapter. There's so much joy in the letter. There's so much talking about freedom. He's, he's, he's like, has such a great relationship with this church in Philippi that he's writing all of these wonderful things. It's really a positive, upbeat letter. And then he gets to the end, and he writes in verse 8 of chapter 4, he writes the word finally. So he's like, okay, I've said all these things, but before I leave you, and before I wrap up this letter, I need to say something because everything that I've just expounded upon, everything I've just explained can be derailed if you miss this. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. It's interesting, right? He, he explains all of this rich, deep theological um, kind of unpacking in chapters 1, 2, 3, and then in, into the beginning of 4. And then he says, oh, but by the way, all of that can be lost if you don't get this. Think about these things. And it, it could be easily one of those things that you skip over unless you realize that Paul sees the weightiness in the way that Paul would actually write his letters. You can see the value that he places on our thought life by the way he puts it at the end of this letter to make sure that we don't miss it. And he gives them what would be for us kind of an odd thing that makes a lot more sense when you understand how the ancients, which would be these people, had and thought about life. 
You see, the ancients, this time period, they were preliterate people. We're illiterate people. All of us are reading this, right? That it's a very common thing for the average person in the North American context to be readers. It's not an abnormal thing. But for Paul's day, reading was something that was really rare. Only the most educated and wealthy could ever read. And so what would happen was the ancients had ways of helping people memorize important information without requiring them to read it. And so one of the ways that they did it was through list. They loved list. They liked, some of you still like list, right? But the ancients really loved list because they were portable. You could drop five or six items and someone would hear them and they'd memorize them and then they could take them with them. They wouldn't have to go back and say, what was that paragraph again? They would say, oh, those five things I was told to memorize. And this is what Paul's doing. He's taken, actually, Paul takes a common, um, this would have been shared by Stoics and some other philosophers at the time. He takes this commonly thought of list of virtues and he, he applies them to the thought life. So this is an instantly portable, packageable way of remembering how to think, which is brilliant on Paul's part because he says, this is so important. I need you to take this with you. I need you to go into your life being able to kind of have this as an accounting chart, as a, as a way of processing, a filter, a litmus test for your thought patterns. And so he puts it in this list that I don't have time to fully unpack today because there's so much there. But I think it would be wrong if I just assume that you and I have a good idea of what they were thinking when they read this. You see, Paul writes this almost 2,000 years ago, and for him to imply that there's a right way of thinking also means, for him to be explicit about a right way of thinking, means that there's an implied wrong way, that there's some defective ways of thinking that don't lead to life, that don't lead to flourishing. And so that implied way that they would have had a sense of, that they'd have spent time learning about, that they would have heard growing up, that's not something that you and I can pull out of the text. It's an assumed thing. And so I don't, want to be, I don't want to make the danger of that you and I are, have the common working definition of some negative thought patterns. And so I just took a few of them that are really common that will kind of help frame and set up where Paul's about to go. These negative thought patterns, these destructive ways that get into our life, one of them is mind reading is what it's kind of typically called in a lot of psychological literature. And mind reading is that you assume you know what the other person is thinking. Now, mind reading may hit really close to home because we all do it, right? We all make statements like, well, they just think I'm boring. They'll, they'll have better things to do than hang out with me, right? They will use those statements like, well, they think I'm stupid or they don't think I'm smart enough. And now, maybe you went out and collected a survey of every single person on planet Earth and compiled that, and you came to the conclusion that humanity as a whole thinks that you're boring. And to that case, congratulations, you have objective evidence to back up your theory. But most of us do not. We mind read. We do it with our spouse. We assume we know what they're thinking. I'm telling you, I have sat in so many situations with couples and seen marriages destroyed by mind reading. Where you just know what the other person, I know that you think, I know, I know what you think about the way I look today. It's like, I promise you, you don't. But, I mean, we bump into mind reading all the time. You know, it's like, I can't believe I said that. I'm such an idiot. They think I'm such an idiot. We do it. 
and we don't even realize it. And mind reading is a destructive thought pattern because it helps to feed and fuel even these other negative thought patterns. See, all these things are connected. It's these kind of we start to personalize what we think other people are thinking about us. We start to use their labels to become our labels. And mind reading happens even before we even know it's happening. When you're a kid growing up, no doubt you probably heard someone say to you, or maybe you grew up in a household where it was really hard and really demanding, and when you made a B, you felt like a failure because you were told you were a failure. And what happens with that label being kind of written out, you're stupid, you're a failure. You're worthless, is that their labels become your labels. And you start to apply them to yourself. You start to personalize them. You start to internalize them. And you're just a failure. When something happens in your life, you say, I'm a failure. When you mess up, you're like, well, it figures. That's what I do. I'm a letdown. Or when something's hard that you've never studied before, you think, well, it doesn't, doesn't surprise me. I'm stupid. It's because we... Allow others' mind reading and others' labels to start to creep into us, and we internalize it. And we don't even realize we're doing it. We'll just say, I'm stupid, out loud, and no one even questions it. Where did that come from? Where did that thought that you're stupid originate from? From someone else, most likely. And you allowed that label to get stuck to you. We do mind reading and social things. Like I already, I think I've told you if you've been here quite regularly that I'm an introvert, which is why I, the, the best that you ever get is me on this stage. If you get me in one-on-one, unless it's like super deep, profound thought and a cup of coffee, I'm not that engaging, right? I mean, my wife, when she has conversations with me, she's like, you just don't get emotionally excited very often. I'm like, no. Like, if I won the lottery or if our house caught on fire, I'd respond like, hmm, interesting. <laughs> like, that's my emotional response. And so I have to watch out because I have this, because I'm an introvert, I, I'll sometimes say, well, people just think I'm awkward or people just think I'm strange. And, and that's mind reading. I haven't gotten a letter from Collective Humanity saying we think you're awkward. Please don't ever do that. That would be horrible. But how many of us do that? It's, maybe it's not awkwardness for you. Maybe it's you're weird or you're strange. Um, like, but we create these labels and we take their labels and we just stick them on ourselves. Another one is a negative filtering or some kind of corollary to that, like discounting the positive. And that's uh, SNL, Saturday Night Live, uh, made this famous with their Debbie Downer character, right? Who, no matter what happened, Debbie Downer always found a reason it was bad. That's, that's negative filtering. You could have the best day at school, but one person said one thing about your dress and everything about your day was ruined, right? Negative filtering, kind of you, one of the aspects that you'll see this will be in the way that we, um, like a kid at Disney World, I think is the perfect example of negative filtering. Their ice cream falls on the ground and it's the worst day ever and it's, the har it's a horrible vacation and you want to be like, uh, you're at Disney World for crying out loud? Like, how is the ice cream on the ground the worst thing ever? Like, everything about your day has been awesome. Because negative filtering doesn't just typically filter on the negative and focus on the negative. It also discounts all the positives. It downplays all the positives. Right? It's, 
the, I think it's kind of like the mom thing where you, you learn this early on because your mother, who's probably watching me right now, I love you, who told me things like I was athletic, right? You know, and you would just, you'd learn to be like, whatever, mom, I was, I'm not athletic. Like, I am the worst gift to the professional or any kind of like group sports ever. Like, but what happens is we take that tendency and we apply it to everything. And so when our spouse or our friend says to us a compliment, we discount it. We're like, well, everyone, everyone's like that. Everyone's kind. Everyone's compassionate. Everyone is intentional. Everyone is sensitive or considerate. And you got paid a legitimate compliment. Someone noticed something distinct about you, and we just discount it. We brush it aside. We play it down. One of my favorite ones is fortune telling, which is when um, it's similar to mind reading, where mind reading focuses on I know what's inside your brain even though you've never told me. Fortune telling is like I know what's in the future even though I live in the present. And fortune telling is underneath one of the minefields that we'll talk about in a few weeks called anxiety. But fortune telling likes to figure out how things go. And it's almost always wrong and bad. It's easy to fixate how your finances um, are going to blow up this month and how you're not going to have enough food to get to the end of the month and you're going to starve and you're going to be kicked out of your house. I mean, fortune telling tends to go really well with another fancy one called catastrophizing, which is you imagine the worst possible case scenario ever. Like, I'm going to go on the state tonight. When I go on the state, they're going to be horrible. I'm going to be awkward, self-labeling. And, and then there, it's just going to be the worst state ever. I'm never going to find a husband or I'm never going to find a wife. And it just spins out of control. We take a moment, or it can be overgeneralizing is another one of these in this family, where we take one moment and we blow it out of proportion. We take one incident and we make that the, like, future prophecy over our lives. And these are all things that we do. Now, I've seen a lot of you look to your left and to your right like, yeah, I know you do it. <laughs> but the reality is that we all do this. That we all have a tendency, if we're not careful, to fall into these default ways of thinking where we get up in front of someone, we, we stumble over our words. I can do it even as I'm speaking, where I stumble over my words and I'm like, they're going to think I'm so dumb. Right? I mean, it's just, it's so easy we don't even recognize that we do it. Which is why I think Paul was so intentional as he's wrapping up this letter to say, finally... It doesn't matter I've given you all this theological truth. It doesn't matter that I've talked about how rich and deep our relationship is. It doesn't matter how much I've talked about how your partnership with me is doing so much to advance this message of hope that we believe. It doesn't matter if I said any of those things because if you miss this, you miss it all. But finally, brothers and sisters, think about these kind of things. See, I don't have the time to fully unpack to you all the negative thought patterns that you and I could have. Nor do I have the time to even unpack all the, the various positive ways of thinking. So what Paul is doing with this list is actually quite clever. When I'm, One of my first real jobs in college, um, so working through college, I got a job as a bank teller. And so I remember thinking, one, that was like the coolest thing ever. I get to handle money and maybe one day somebody will come in and rob me and it will be like a movie scene, Right? <laughs> And, and so I don't know why, like I said, our, our thoughts are just insidious little things. And so um, I remember the day and when I'm going through my training where it was like counterfeit money training day. 
which I was going to be like, this is so cool. This is going to be like a James Bond. People are going to come and flip up a suitcase, and it's going to be all these fake $100 bills. And, and they come in, and it's really interesting. The way they train you to spot counterfeit money is that they come in, and they say to you, we want to train you to spot counterfeit money. Now, most of you think that I'm just going to show you a slideshow with all the different forms of counterfeit money that we've seen, and that will help you. But the reality is, is that there are so many different ways of counterfeiting a dollar, a $20, a $5, or a $100 bill that it doesn't serve you for us to show you past examples of counterfeits. Because that doesn't help you predict future counterfeits. In fact, the way we're going to train you is today you're going to do nothing but spend time counting and holding real money. And so the entire day, all you do is you just count money. You have $1 bills going through your hands, 5s, 10s, 20s, 100s. And you just spend time touching more money than you will ever touch in the course of your life. Untold amount of money. Just go. Go through your fingertips. And the reason why is because they understand that if you become so intimately aware of what the real feels like, you instantly feel the fake when it crosses your fingertips. And it's a really working theory. I remember that moment. Something flew through my fingers, and it didn't feel right. And it was fake. Because if you know the real, you can spot the fake really quick. But if I train you on just the fake, you'll never have a, a framework to spot the real correctly. Which is why Paul doesn't give them all the different ways they could think wrong. I wanted to give you enough so that you'd have that in the back of your mind. But the reality is I can't tell you all the negative ways of thinking. So what does Paul do? He gives them a portable list. And I want to just pick a few of them. A, a few of them that I think will kind of help you wrap your mind around a framework to begin to know and to feel what's the real way, the right way of thinking. It's interesting that Paul says, think about such things. The word he uses there is almost an accounting phrase. He's like, take account of these items I'm about to list to you. It's almost like, hey, there's a slot There's for those accountants in, us, in the room or join us online who really love spreadsheets, right? And you've got your little number and you've got your little category and your item. He's like, I want to give you some items so that when they come through your system, when they're passing through your mind, you feel it. And you're like, oh, that belongs in that box. Oh, that belongs in that box. Oh, there's not a box for that. That's probably bad. Oh, there's, oh that belongs in that box. So the word he uses, I want to give you a way of accounting your thoughts. Not just a way of thinking, but a way of thinking about your thoughts that'll help you identify the real and the counterfeit ways of thinking. The first is the true. And true is that which corresponds to reality, which is an interesting that he leads out with that. It's an interesting fact because what I find oftentimes when I'm counseling with people is that our biggest struggles often are rooted in our inability to see the reality in front of us. We are so good at denial. We are so, so good at justification and explaining away. We've gotten so good at that not only can we do it for ourselves, we can even use others in the process. We call that blaming. Right? Where we, instead of looking at the raw reality in front of us, we will take that, cover reality up by shifting all the way to responsibility onto someone else. We're good at denial. We're good at ignoring reality, which is why Paul says, look, the first thing that you need to realize is it feels like real. It, it's reality-based. 
It's not what you want, it's what is. Because if you can come to terms with reality, if you can come to terms with what the situation actually is or what the thought is actually about, then you're able to detect those counterfeit denial thoughts, those blame-shifting thought patterns that can creep in and take us away. Then he uses another word as he goes on. He says the word right. Now, the word right is uh, an interesting word because in the Greek, it has this sense of uh, justice attached to it. And what he's trying to imply there is he's trying to help them think about their thoughts from the view of heaven, from an outsider's standpoint. That it's not just self-centered, it's heaven-centered, meaning that you think about your thoughts in, in relation to the other person too. Now, that seems really abstract. Let me get really uh, personal with it. When you flip it, what it's doing is it's counteracting our tendency for rumination where we have an argument with someone or a disagreement with someone, and all you can think about is everything they said and everything they did that was wrong. And you focus, and you just chew on it, and you just let it bounce around in your head. And you never, ever see them for what it really was. You see it for, in your mind, what feels good to see it as. How they were just so stupid, how they said that. or They don't have a clue what they're talking about. And we chew on it, and we chew on it, and we chew on it. And right means that we're able to take a step back and see it objectively. We're able to see it from God's vantage point, from heaven's vantage point. Another word he uses is pure, which is a word, again, that we don't use very oftenly. It's, it's a word that had a deep Jewish religious connotation to it. Um, whether you were Jewish or you were pagan, whatever religious system you had, most of the religious systems in this time period had this idea of coming to a temple, a physical place, and the way that you prepared for that place was that you would go through a checklist in your mind. You would, you would have a self-accounting. You would make sure that you had eaten the right things, that you had done the right things, that you avoided certain things. And before you would approach the temple, you would go through this checklist in your mind to make sure you were pure. You would make sure that you had kind of taken full stock of everything in your life so that you could freely approach. It's not just, this, it's not just a kind of a connotation around sexuality. It's a connotation around your whole entire life. And what this does is that when we think pure, when we have that self-awareness, when we have that sense of being careful about self-evaluation and how our thought processes are sounding and what our thought processes churning through our brain are actually kind of focused on. What it does is it's when you are that self-aware, you can avoid the trap of objectifying people, right? Because we have a tendency, we will turn people into objects very quickly. We will dehumanize people very quickly into their worst kind of component parts, that person becomes a jerk, or that individual becomes an idiot. And we fall into the trap of labeling others. And by staying pure in our thoughts, we prevent people from becoming objects on a computer screen or something that we just beat up on in our mind. We're able to think through the situation with a healthy enough self-awareness that we're kind of cognizant of everything going on in our thought life. Now again, Paul knows that this isn't enough, so he actually ends it with whatever is excellent and praiseworthy. He's like, look, I know I can't give you an exhaustive list, so let me just say it this way. 
if it's excellent and praiseworthy, it's okay to thank it. Now, again, let me get very practical with this because the challenge with this list is that for us, it can get very abstract because we're not a preliterate society used to having lists in our mind to guide our way of thinking. So imagine I had an invention. And it was an invention. It was a, looked similar to a baseball cap, and I could put it on your head. And everything that you thought came out of this speaker. Okay, imagine that I invented that, and I did that for you. And every thought that you had just came out of that loudspeaker. Paul is saying, imagine that. How would people describe what they hear? Would it be praiseworthy? Would it be excellent? What if I upgraded it and it had Bluetooth capabilities and could come across your car speakers? Would it be excellent? Would it be praiseworthy? Would it be pure? Would it be right? Would it be true? What if I could channel it into your television so it became the soundtrack, like Mystery Science Theater, as you watch television, it allowed your thoughts to come out too? Would it be excellent? Would it be praiseworthy? This is ultimately what Paul is trying to do with this list. He's like, imagine your thoughts are what everyone hears and not your words. And if they had this list, would they check the box and say, yep, that's exactly what it sounds like? Or would they? Or would they hear something different? It's a terrifying thing, isn't it, to imagine your thoughts were broadcast out loud. I remember when I first started dating Jenny. That's like the most terrifying. When someone gets that intimately close to you, that's like the scariest question ever. What are you thinking about? <laughs> You're like, oh, my goodness. Well, like three seconds ago, it was macaroni and cheese, but now it's like, what if chickens could rap? And then I'm pretty sure it somehow went into football. Like, all in the span, like, I'm sorry, were you asking me something? Because I was thinking about macaroni and cheese and chickens and football. That's what was going through my brain for the last half second. Right? I mean, it's a terrifying question to ask someone what they're thinking about. And Paul was saying, look, ask yourself that question. And be honest enough to answer, what does it look like? Because most of us don't fall into this list by default. We fall into this list by determination. Which is why he says, think about such things. These are a command. He's calling us to do this. And that means we have a choice in the process. We actually can do something about our thought life. We have more control. To add further weight to what Paul is doing here, Paul is writing this while in prison. He's telling them to think these ways while he's shackled in a dark corridor. Not sure where tomorrow's food's going to come from. I mean, that's street cred to me. He's like, look, this is, this is stress tested. This, this is scalable. This works. This is time tested. Because even in a place where my body is imprisoned, my mind is still free. And so do this. Do what I'm doing. Because it works. It brings joy. It brings peace. If you do this. And for me, that is an incredibly freeing thing to know. That no matter what your body, no matter where you are, no matter what you've thought before, you have a choice about what you think today. 
And Paul could have this confidence because ultimately rooted in the Christian faith was this amazing reality that Jesus had been convicted of a religious crime. He'd been crucified. He'd been put in a grave. And three days later, he walked out himself carrying the very chain breakers that you and I need to walk in freedom in our life. And it's from this place, it's from this mindset that Paul writes these words that no matter who you are, no matter what you've gone through, no matter what you're experiencing, you can take control. And to be very honest with you, one of the things in college that almost killed me was my diagnosis before I had a diagnosis was OCD. I had never known. Growing up my entire life, I didn't know I had OCD. And about between sophomore and junior year, I ended up going down a series of choices and paths in my life that almost killed me. One of the most powerful, liberating things that ever happened to me was I realized that the faith that had transformed me from the inside out could actually transform the way I think about life, too. And that when I say this is time-tested, that it's been tested in prison with Paul, it's time-tested in my life, too. That I walk with a freedom, with a disease that could easily chain me and destroy me. And that this isn't just mere theoretical talk about being cognizant. It's, it's really like this. So this thing right here, let me give you a little secret. Um, I, I probably am not going to sing, although I could be like, I met a girl for me. Right? Anyways. And so, like, this little thing right here is not for him to sing to you. Now, when Daniel's up here and he's playing, what he's doing is he's talking into this microphone. This is called a talkback microphone. This, this allows him to say things because our band has these little earpieces in their head and they're up here and they sound good and they look good. And what Daniel's noticing is he's like, okay, we're getting ready to go into this transition. So he's like, all right, bridge is coming up, right? Okay, or hey, guys, let's, let's key change it here. He's commanding and telling them in the band what to do. He's talking back to them, and you don't even know. All you hear is like, they are awesome, or wow, they're so good. And you don't even know that what is happening is someone is up here telling them and teaching them and talking to them and directing them. And what Paul is saying to us is that you can talk back to your thoughts. You can tell them. You can choose which thoughts you have. And if you don't like your thoughts, stop arguing with them. Start thinking new ones. Think what is right. Think what is pure. Think what is true. And that when you and I start talking back to our thoughts, you will start to find the promise that Paul leaves us with in verse 9, that you will find that the God of peace will be with you. And that the peace that Jesus brings isn't just a peace theologically where we're right with God and we no longer have to worry about guilt or shame, but it's a peace that starts to permeate every part of our being including our mind too. Which is why this series, I think, has the power to transform our lives. Because when we become aware enough of what's happening up there and we can identify the negative thoughts, then because of Paul's words and what Jesus has done, we can begin to talk back and intentionally choose different thoughts. Thoughts that bring peace not thoughts that leave us in pieces. And so I want to I challenge you this month. I normally don't do this, but I want to challenge you. Be present in this series. 
If you're traveling, this is why we do Facebook Live and podcasting. Because over the course of this month, we're going to talk about some very powerful and practical ways you can start to reimagine your thought life. And next week, it's going to get real, real fast. And so I want to challenge you, carve out Sundays in the month of March, because this series is going to help you master your mind. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. Did you know we've created a free app just for you? Whether you are exploring or want to grow in your faith, the app is a great place to start. If you found today's teaching helpful, we hope you'll subscribe or share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you on site or online at Encounter Church soon.